1: Right now, get 15% off your first order at borough.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at borough.com slash ACAST.
2: Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.
3: Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly, a Premier League preview with some interesting questions. A Friday night relegation six-pointer at the bridge or is that unfair on Luton? Can Manchester United's terrible week end on a positive note on the pitch at home to Forest. There's a Newcastle-Liverpool Super Sunday to look forward to. Then there's Everton's permanent crisis, Ivan Tony's first post-ban interview and the beginning of Aston Villa's European adventure. Paul McInnes has been to Riyadh and Jeddah to watch the Saudi League. We'll do a little bit of Norwich and find out if Barry has become a wedding crasher. All that plus your questions and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. on the panel today. Barry Glenn Denning. hello. Hi, Max. Uh, hello, Paul McInnes. Hi, Max. And hello, Norodin Chowdhury. How are you?
4: Hello, I'm good. You?
3: Yeah, I'm well. I'm, I apologise to Barry and Paul for not caring how you were, only <laughs> not. but there we are. It's too late now, isn't it? Um, let's start then with a, a look at the Premier League games. Chelsea-Luton on Friday night. It's a, it's a shame, Barry. I know it wasn't meant to be at Kenilworth Road, but it's a shame given the crisis that Chelsea are apparently in, that this game isn't at Kenilworth Road, I think.
0: Yeah, I suppose it is, but uh, it isn't. So <laughs> it's at Stamford Bridge. Um, I'm in one of those last man standing competitions in uh, with a load of guys at home in Burr. And if Chelsea lose or draw this game, it's going to be an absolute bloodbath. The competition could be over on week three. Almost everyone is going for Chelsea and it's difficult to see past the Chelsea win. We've we've only seen Luton play one game. They got fairly comprehensively beaten. But I think everyone would love to see them get a result. Everyone who hasn't got any affiliation to Chelsea would love to see them get a result. And given that the Chelsea don't seem to be doing so well, they're, they're winless in six Premier League games. It, it's not inconceivable that Luton could get something, but on the evidence of what I've seen so far, they, they probably won't, but fingers crossed.
3: Yeah, Paul, what have you made of Chelsea's start?
5: Well, it's it's a mixed... I think it's a mixed bag, and I think that's probably the narrative right now excludes acknowledgement of the better things. Clearly, Enzo is playing well. Uh, Raheem Sterling's looking as good as he ever has for Chelsea. There are there are aspects to the game which uh, which or the system rather, which um, Pochettino appears to be wanting to put in place that that you can see kind of the, the framework of it. I thought um, Gallagher played well against uh, against Liverpool. Nicholas Jackson is offering something up front as a, a, a certainly as a part of the system, if not necessarily a, a lethal front man yet. However, I think you can't really take away from. I think it's very difficult to disassociate what's going on the pitch and what's going off the pitch. And as they continue to, you know, spend hundreds of millions of quid on unproven players and there is increasing focus on how does this work as a kind of a business and are you deliberately trying to break FFP? I think that just reflects greater pressure on the team to deliver. And, you know, I've even heard sort of things like, you know, Pochettino is not under great pressure yet, but it's like, well... If he is under pressure and if you decide that that he's not the man to handle it, there's not many candidates in the world, you know, Carlo maybe, who you could actually plug into that situation and think, well, he's definitely going to fix it. It's a complicated situation whereby, you know, they've got massive influx of, of new players. Lots of them are going to be expecting to play. And some of them who clearly don't deserve to play, like Mudrich, you know, they've got to be playing somehow because they're an investment that they're going to be expecting to make a return on. So I think it's very, very complex for Chelsea at the moment. But I, I think a lot of that, it comes from off the pitch.
3: Not is it a relief that there is another club as well as your own, uh, Manchester United, that are in crisis at the same time? So you don't have to shoulder that. I mean, Everton, obviously, permanently, we understand that. But, you know, of the of the big six, in inverted commas, you don't have to shoulder all the burden at the moment.
4: Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely like it's like we're the titanic but then you you've always got everton and chelsea who are the life rafts and it's a case of uh, at least at least you've got those two to sort of like uh, sit next to on the rubbish table but yeah i mean I, I i agree with what um what paul was saying about you can see you can see you can see improvements you can see what Pochettino's doing and you can see that he's bringing some shape and getting the best out of some players but the problem is that it kind of feels as if he's He's in a situation that was similar to PSG, if and if not worse. It's just chaotic. All these players coming in, um, and how he's going to fit them all in. Um, people people talk about the FFP thing and whether it's a strategy to to sort of fail on purpose. I think if I was Pochettino, I would be rubbing my hands with glee at the prospect of a of a transfer ban because then he could just take stock and think right they they can they literally cannot buy any more players and and I can just do my job.
3: I touched on Manchester United having a bad time. They play Forest. It has not been a great week to be a Manchester United fan. Now, how have you and look we've covered we've covered it off the pitch in great detail. So we don't necessarily need to do that again, but how as a fan, how have you found it?
4: I mean, it's just it's just been a mess to the extent that you just you kind of um, revel in the in the fact that you can you can complain about the football because that's the least of our worries in terms of how the club's been represented and 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 what's been happening around the club. Um, it, it it does it does feel toxic as as much as you try and sort of think this is separate. Okay, this is the football pitch and this is everything that's happening around it. You can't make that distinction because because everything pollutes into into even what your your joy is in in terms of watching the team. It feels very political. It does. You, you don't. It, there's not even a sense of catharsis of like okay a decision that you wanted to be made has been made and then you move on because you know that that decision has been forced onto the club. You can you can tell by the statements that they've made that there's still the residue of the arguments that they were going to make and they'd planned for um, if they'd got what they want and you didn't have these meddling journalists that were opening up the, the behind-the-scenes the machinations to the public. It kind of feels as if they were forced to do it, and 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 the worry is that if something like this was to happen again, would they act any different than than the way it ha- they have? So, so that, that's that's all a bit of a, a downer. But uh, but again, like in in terms of positives, you take from it, um, I I genuinely have been so impressed with, with with the way that most I know not all, but most uh, Manchester United fans have have kind of chosen the right sort of um way of looking at it in terms of it's not about football in terms of bringing um greenwood in in terms of like the pros and cons of that it's 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 not been about football because everyone appreciates what a special talent he is and was but that didn't come into it because people were just unaccepting of of um of the other things so, so that's good and and also i feel as if like um in general rival fans have been really cool about it in terms of they, they've not used it for point score, and it's been more a case of like this is this is a really terrible situation. It's more important than football rivalries and the stakeholders involved, and there's people who are going to suffer from the, the the ramifications. So I think that's been really positive. So as far as far as United being chaotic on a pitch, like that's blessed relief because that's football, and, and and you can always you can always live with that. So. Um, so give me a porous midfield and a team that doesn't know how to score any day of the week. This thing of trying to separate what's happened to what's happened on the pitch. We know that people who are involved in the sporting side and are, are in, and that are in charge of the sporting side wanted Greenwood back or, or were happy to have him back, and that and that's that knowledge still remains now. So it, it, even even though it's been resolved to an extent that leaves a really sort of gross taste in the mouth it still has left a mark and it, it still makes you feel differently about the club so yeah it's uh, it's 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 still not a situation that's uh, gone away
3: back onto the pitch paul um which i understand is quite elite but they play forest Mason mount is injured and i wonder if and He's sort of the full guy a lot of the time. Mason Mount, is am fair. He's a very good footballer, but I wonder if that might help the balance of the midfield.
5: I mean, it it it, it, dep- it depends, I guess um, who he plays there. But if if you if you imagine that he sort of drafts in McTominay, and he forms a, a an alliance with Casemiro in the middle, then then all of a sudden it does look it look, does look a little bit more balanced. I mean, I, from what I understand, didn't watch the full game, but it sounded like United created. Enough chances against Spurs. Their problem was missing them on the day. Forrest, I think Forrest are a, an interesting team to watch this season, and I think they'll give them a good they'll give them a good uh, a good test. Uh, however, you know at Old Trafford, on the back of you know, two sort of uninspiring uh, results, one bad performance, one, one one half bad performance, and two uninspiring results, you you could see. I think you could imagine that there's a bit of a uh a pushback from United and a bit of a response. So um, you know, and, and, and I think a simple kind of thing of that being forced into actually making a, a kind of a, a non-progressive but actually quite sensible midfield partnership could do them could do them a favor.
3: Baz, Casemiro is under the spotlight. For not being fit enough, which I I sort of presume is happens to all footballers who just aren't incredibly lithe, sinewy people. He's just a bit bigger. He's just a bit bigger, you know. I mean, he, it's not like he's got a pot belly,
0: is it? Like, no, but, but maybe maybe he is slightly off the pace. I don't know. I mean, I think if you stood me next to Casemiro, he'd suddenly <laughs> look very fit and lithe indeed. But um, I I think it's slightly unfair that. Yeah, he and Mount seem to be shipping a lot of blame for United's on-field <sighs> He has been left horribly exposed. Uh, I just work on the assumption that at the start of a football season, everyone is very fit. <laughs> you don't know if he's maybe carrying a niggle or has a sore toe or whatever, but... I I think it's too early to write him off. He he has been left in some horrible positions where we see him backpedalling furiously against players who are naturally quicker than he is. Uh, so I, I would say the jury remains out for me on this one. Nottingham Forest go to Old Trafford. What, they won one game away from home last season. I think they took eight or nine points on the road. So it's this would be a great statement win for them you know we can win away from home but they've shown us that they can't win away from home <laughs> so yeah it's it's an interesting one
3: and look nods look casemiro was written off last season and he was really good and man united lost their first two games and they were written off and they made the champions league so i guess you don't need to panic yeah you wanted to talk about bruno fernandes before we move on
4: yeah it was it, it was just this uh this sense that i, I think Part of the thinking around Bruno Fernandes becoming captain is is is, is that it kind of that armband legitimizes his ability to be a nuisance and to basically peck the referee's head all game, and I think it's become I think it's um it's a massive rude awakening to everyone at the club that, that that's not allowed because I think I think that was a built-in strategy of like he. As a ma- as, as a captain it's not it's not like cricket or anything where like the captain sort of dictates the, the play and and is, is essentially the manager on the pitch uh it's it's largely just this ethereal thing of like they are a leader whereas anyone can be a leader whether the captain or not it's it, 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 the one advantage of having Bruno as your captain is is it is it gave him carte blanche to run up to the referee and do that thing they always do it biggest demoniest whingers. Always do this thing of they push other players away. I like to say, no, no, I'm the reasonable one. I'm the one who's going to sort of talk to you in a reasonable manner. But then, can, then sort of subsequently just moan for forever. So you you could tell when when Bruno's reaction when he was booked was like, what the hell is going on? Like it's, it, it's like this this is not meant to happen. So I think I think that's going to be a major issue with uh with with Bruno going going forward because there's always that thing of um people always said about Wayne Rooney oh you can't take away the anger you, because that's fundamental to his game um and, and and that's what that's what makes him an amazing player uh with with fernandes you can't take away that uh being a slight dick because that is that is fundamental to the man and fundamental to the player it's, even when he scores goals it's it's out of like a resentment and uh and getting one back on somebody who's who's sort of done a, a late challenge on him. So yeah, that's going to be a major struggle because where does all that pent up arsiness
3: go? If he can't yell at the ref, he needs he needs an ad, you need to give him a Tamuri Kitts advertising hoarding he does. just in the dressing room, perhaps <laughs> just to kick the living daylights out of in between at half time.
4: He's gonna end up ringing, r- ring, ringing you and Barry on uh, on Talksport. He's going to, thats what he needs. He needs to ring in radio stations. Yeah, that's the only way. That like...
3: <laughs> Our show isn't—it's not really that kind of phoning. But I guess we would take the call from Bruno <laughs> Fernandes, wouldn't we? Um, at Newcastle Liverpool Paul, Um It's a big game, isn't it? Newcastle had a pretty tough start to the season. You know, people thought Villa at home would be hard. City away obviously is hard. Uh, and Liverpool—the only side to beat them home and away last season. It's fascinating to see how this goes. You sort of sometimes feel the way Newcastle dispatched Villa; they could do that quite a lot at home against against anybody.
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, St James's Park is undoubtedly going to be, be be up for this game, and and the vulnerabilities in Liverpool at the minute are clear. Uh, and you know, I, I don't think Newcastle produced an awful lot to threaten Man City last week, but they were organised, and you know. They held. They held their shape, and they they they, they put a, put a question. They asked the question of City, which ultimately the champions answered. But I, I you know, I, th- I think uh, they will they will expect to win this game. I'm not entirely convinced yet that the Liverpool rebuild is going to work. And uh, you know, I, I don't get Gakpo in the in the center of the in the center of midfield. Um, certainly, I think kind of. Going backwards, there's lots and lots of questions about that team.
3: God, I haven't been concentrating. Is, is Gakpo been playing deeper? I mean, I just always presumed he, he's in the front three. I... Uh,
5: Diogo Jota through the centre, Diaz on the left, Salah on the yeah. right, and then Gakpo in a kind of a, well, I, I guess a 8-10 eight, eight slash 10 or whatever. But, you know, mm. McAllister got sent. McAllister, you know, obviously had it rescinded. But I think, uh, you know, I think Liverpool they got their first win of the season but it, it wasn't it wasn't uh, it wasn't plain sailing and 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 there were moments of concern and and i think that that midfield i, I like i like both McAllister and um so, sausage as i like to call him but i suspect that's not what you should shoboshlai yeah. i like yes. him but
3: <laughs> you can call him sausage thank you very you much um, but
5: i think they you know they're going to need time to bed in and i, I think it's un- it's, I, it's not it's not a particularly secure uh, arrangement. So I, th- I think Endo that, that's the guy right, who I hope to make a positive difference for them because experience, energy. Uh, that's what that's what kind of what uh, I think I think that midfield needs. Um, so you know he could be, he could be he could be, make a positive difference and maybe he'll even do it this weekend. But I, I think at this moment in time, if I'm Newcastle, I'm looking forward to playing Liverpool.
3: All right, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two, uh, we'll begin looking at Everton Wolves. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. We're going on tour starting in London uh, on November the 13th. Um, Then the next day we're in Bristol on the 15th, Manchester, 20th and 21st Dublin, 22nd Brighton. Tickets on sale now. Go to theguardian.com slash fwtour23. The Brighton show is being streamed across earth. So wherever you're listening to this, you can come along and we'd love it if you did. Um, Everton Wolves, Barry, what is the earliest you can have an actual relegation six pointer. Uh,
0: it does have a look of one about it, but I think we all know what we think of Everton, they're a mess. Uh even their own fans would admit that. It's a bit too early to decide that Wolves are terrible. They lost against Manchester United, but they played incredibly well, and then they got absolutely monstered at home by Brighton. So, one good performance, one very bad one against two pretty decent teams. It looks like they're about to lose Matthias Nunez. Well, he's out anyway because he got those two stupid yellow cards last, last weekend. So he's suspended, but it looks like he's off to, to Manchester City who've cooled their interest in Lucas Paqueta, which I think this will be talking about later. Everton's problem, obviously, is goal, scoring goals and it's hard to know where the goals are going to come from. They're missing Alex Iwobi for this game. I think he'll be a huge loss and he could be out for a while. Looks like he's got pretty bad hamstring injury. So I I would expect Wolves to win this game, but it is at Goodison. So in the words of the great Charlie Baker, Max, we'll see.
3: We'll see. I kind of feel with Everton, Noz. It's just every year they will stay up towards the end of the season. Goodison will become incredibly noisy. Is this the last year of Goodison, wherever they happen to be? It will be incredibly noisy, and, they'll, and then they'll say, "Now this is the summer that we have to reset." But you know, off the pitch, there are all sorts of tr- problems there as well, aren't there?
4: Yeah, this is it's, it's difficult for Everton because you, you don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. It's like a social experiment of like in 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 the in the in the, in the glory days of Big Brother before they started to bring all these fads in. It was a social experiment, and it was a case of like. How how are these people gonna uh, react to things going wrong? And then let's let's change things slightly. Let's let's reduce the budget for the food. Let's reduce the amount of t- time they can sleep, just to see how they react. And it, and and that kind of feels as if that's happening at Everton. It's like okay, they they've still got most of this on it in terms of the, all these things going wrong. Now let's have this going wrong. Now let's have that going wrong. You
3: say they're not they're not feeding James Tarkovsky. It's not fair. It's
4: <laughs> it's to, exactly. Why
3: did you play well, yet? Didn't reason for the defeat i'm really hungry
4: yeah basically but basically the canteen is just a chalkboard and they're all deciding like like how how many beans they have uh no it's it's it's, it's that thing of like even even the, the, there's even just enough hope sometimes just to drum drum in how bad things are so you kind of feel okay they hate the the ownership they might be going oh no they're not like it, it, everything seems to be going wrong the, 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 even the injuries seem to be strategic in terms of Okay, you're having problems scoring, right? We're going to take these two players out, who are your only source of goals. So it's a dire situation, but I mean, th- the one saving grace is the manager. I think if there's anyone who can, just through um, his experience, obviously his tactical acumen and everything, like he's he's got a chance of of, of just like using every sinew of his of of his. Uh, uh, knowledge and experience of, of, of pushing them through the season, but it's uh, it'll be in spite of the club instead of because of it.
3: Brentford Play Palace, Paul Simon asked, thoughts on the Ivan Tony podcast? He clearly doesn't take any responsibility or really feels like he did anything wrong and obviously feels like the FA didn't want him in the England squad, which I don't get. He was on the Diary of the CEO podcast, just a couple of quotes. He said, I don't think it's right, no. We did look at some cases that were somewhat similar, some were worse and their punishment wasn't how mine is. The fact that I'm playing in the Premier League, doing well, sniffing around England, it's kind of like, right, this is our chance to punish him. I guess it comes down to the allegations. Personally, I feel it was a bit of a questionable time when they decided to bring it all out. And then when they actually dealt with the situation come the end of the season, the biggest punishment for me was missing out on playing at the World Cup. I felt more hurt and down around that time, felt like somebody's out to get me to stop me from playing for England. It's everyone's dream to play at a World Cup.
5: Yeah, um, I don't think he comes out of the interview particularly well. He, in he, he, this, the, the, the point about the, uh, they're making an example of me. He's, he's sort of, it's put to him that one of the reasons, uh, that he does receive such a, a severe sentence, although it could have been a lot more severe had, had he not been diagnosed as having a gambling addiction, um, that, that basically he, he is given that punishment to serve as an example because of his, because of his high profile so it's something that actually the kind of the fa are quite clear about this because of the the example that such a you know a prominent person can set by behaving like that that needs to be um hit, hit with a an equally kind of stringent sanction so that point it, it, there's this sort of an argument on two sides he says i'm hit because i'm famous they say yeah well, you're hit because you're famous but, but for whether whether that's fair or not there's a debate over that but some of this stuff you know, he 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 still doesn't really accept that he was a that 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 he knew uh not to gamble on football. And I think you know from reading over the 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 uh the, the the hearing, the tribunal, the commission's report when it came out, I think they established pretty clearly that it was well established within football that you couldn't bet. And he keeps on using the phrase. He keeps on when asking about not betting, and it, you know he is being done for betting uh per se. He keeps shifting it to match fixing. Like I didn't match fix. Nobody says I match fix. Well, okay, but that's not what you got sanctioned for. You got sanctioned for betting. And then the the stuff with the the stuff with getting somebody else to bet, and the stuff about his parents opening his mail, and the stuff about he, you know, he he says he basically says that he never he doesn't think he he, there's there's certain bets that he just didn't do So he couldn't remember at the time when he was being interviewed. What kind of betting he'd done, but he can remember now that he didn't do certain types of bets, particularly those on his team to lose when he wasn't playing. Um So it comes across as certainly defiant to an, to an extent, and and uh, not entirely convincing. Yeah, I think there is definitely an element of not of, of self pity, I wouldn't say, but you know, I'm the victim here, and I'm going to come back and I'm going to prove everybody wrong, which I think. By all accounts, you know, his own account, that's what he's used um, throughout his, his career to drive him on.
0: I just think the only person to blame for the pickle in which Ivan Tony currently finds himself is Ivan Tony, And that's, you know, just... And he claims that you know we've heard this recently from someone else outside the football industry malign forces are conspired to keep him out of the England squad for the World Cup but no, nobody benefited from apart from Callum Wilson nobody benefited from Ivan Tony not being in the England squad and it seems a bizarre uh thing for him to suggest otherwise, you know, why would the FA or Gareth Southgate or anyone else not want him in? So unless Callum Wilson grasped him up or something, and I'm not suggesting for a second that's what happened.
3: Derek says, with Villa playing in Europe on a Wednesday as opposed to Thursday this week, can I be confident we won't hear any more on the pod about this season's European adventure? There is every chance. They go to um, Burnley at the weekend, they beat Hibs 5-0, Ollie Watkins scored a hat-trick, but... Because of our timings, the Conference League will get little airtime until perhaps the semi-final or the final. But I guess that's probably where they'll end up, won't they? Because they are one of the biggest teams in the, in the tournament. And when that happens, Derek, we will, of course, cover it. Uh, the other games, Sheffield United, Man City, Arsenal, Fulham, Bournemouth, Spurs, Brighton, West Ham. Does anyone have any strong thoughts on any of those fixtures? Please raise your hand.
0: Well, I, I guess if we covered Ivan Tony, we should probably touch on the Lucas Paqueta thing because he's been withdrawn from the Brazil squad for two uh, qualifiers against Peru and Bolivia in the next international break. And that's because he's being investigated for uh, bets placed in Brazil over... Not match outcomes, but in-game incidents that are alleged to involve him getting yellow cards. Uh, he's denied placing any bets himself. I think that the "himself" there is quite an important word.
3: You get Ivan uh, Tony to bet- do it for him, is the
0: uh- <laughs> maybe? Maybe he did. Is Ivan Tony allowed to bet on football while he's also banned from all <laughs> football activity? I don't good, know. Good question. But, uh, for the benefit of the lawyers, we should point out. That was a joke. We are not saying Ivan Tony has put bets on for Lucas Spaghetti, And and it looks like these allegations have almost certainly cost him a, a potentially life-changing move to Manchester City. So, you know, you're not allowed bet and you're not allowed to get someone else to bet on your behalf. I just, I, I don't know why footballers do it. Find it. Find another vice.
3: To be fair, Nos, I think when these bands, the band came out of it, Tony, we were quite sympathetic, given how much you know. Just you are confronted by gambling, right? I guess you. It is at the same time you can, as uh, Barry and Paul have very articulately said, blame a footballer for placing bets when being told not to, but at the same time, sort of worry about the gamblification of the game itself.
4: I know like we we sometimes make jokes about um this whole concept of like high performance and this whole idea of like um training your mind and everything but I think the whole industry of that has got a side that's negative for people because it's always about looking forward it's always about difficulties that you've overcome and it's and it's this idea of life is is like football so we know that footballers um, need to have this mind frame of that's a defeat. We move on. Uh, we move forward. But in life, you've got to, you've got to look back. You've got to look at your mistakes. Not everything is something that's happened to you. And that's the biggest thing that came out of the Ivan Tony interview. I think is that he he seems to think that everything happened to him. He seems to think that he was he was this innocent party and things just happened to him and if you've got that kind of mindset and and i've got no doubt that that mindset um in part will be built on people um sort of uh, build a bit his friends and his ecosystem telling him that he's done nothing wrong and he's the victim and how how unfair all this is on him and i just think that's a really negative thing because like like what i was saying um people have got sympathy because the real issue that should be focused on in terms of what has happened to Ivan Tone is the prevalence of betting in football. Um the fact it's it's on his shirt. Uh and the fact that it's he he grows up around it in football. But also this thing of of like working class kids aren't always taught about money money management. And it's that thing of when people from um a background of not having much money get money. They're not used to having it and therefore um you can go down certain roads that aren't ideal and 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 that should be the thing the, the thing should be education on on money and how to how to sort of use it and how not how not to abuse it but also this greater issue about betting in football and how corrosive and 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 sort of all encompassing it is and if if that had been the focus it would have been far more to the benefit of of, of, of tony rather than this whole idea of, like, this happened to me and uh, I didn't lie, I just forgot, and it was a
0: grey area for me. It just, it burns, it burns so much goodwill. I think it's important to, to note as well that Tony has said he's a gambling addict and addicts, and particularly gambling addicts, that's, they lie, they blame, they deflect, they deny they delude themselves. And if he's in the early stages of his recovery, uh, we're led to believe he's in the early stages of his recovery, then it's no surprise that he's defensive and possibly delusional. But hopefully his mindset will change.
5: I just wanted to say I thought that's a really insightful point that Nos makes about the mindset. And, you know, I, I think I, I try and stay away, away from self-help just because I don't want to fix myself. But... um I kind of feel that that's definitely there's definitely an industry around that and a way of thinking. I also think that it's also a way of thinking that some people just naturally have and a lot of successful people do I think you can see it in politics for generations you know people kind of moving on like that the only the only thing note I wanted to add was that listening to this podcast he 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 is clear that when he was gambling heavily he never he was he he just used the money that he had that he he paid his bit he he paid his bills first. Then gambled and sometimes would struggle to get to the end of the month, but uh, he seemed to have a kind of like a yeah, I, I take care of what I have to take care of first, and, and then I then I then I then I play, which I thought was interesting too.
3: All right, that'll do for part two. Uh, part three, we'll talk about Paul's visit to Saudi Arabia.
2: Instacart shoppers, no groceries. They know that you can't make guacamole with rock hard avocados.
3: Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, Paul, you travelled to Saudi Arabia for the opening round of fixtures, paid for by the Guardians. It's important to point out, not a not a league jolly. How was it?
5: Well, it was it was very it was very interesting. I before I went out, I would spent a lot of time working on a big piece on the Saudi sporting strategy. Like, why are they spending? That like, a they're spending they're investing in so many more sports than you'd think, and b uh it's it's a, a scale that's never been really done, done before so why are they doing that so i kind of like been thinking about it talking about it an awful lot in fact i had just it in my head permanently so i was a little bit kind of um i was expecting to see i think some sort of great joined up super ambitious relentless kind of sporting behemoth that was ready to you know launch itself on the world and devour football as we know it and I think my experience of this pro league was it's a bit shonky um not unlike uh, you know a lot of a lot of sport that you might go and watch at any any country at any level but it was a bit shonky the opening night was great it was so it was al-Aqli versus um al-Hazam and al-Aqli have uh, they're one of the big four in Saudi Arabia the big four have been taken over by the public investment fund the the famous sovereign wealth fund that owns Newcastle they've been the subject of the biggest sort of buys. And I see that. I think Fabrizio Romano is saying today that Gabi Vega is going to go to Al-Akhli, who that's quite interesting because he's 23 and a much coveted player around Europe. So that would be a big deal for the Saudi Pro League. But that opening night, um, it was in Jeddah, big city, big football city. But Al-Akhli is sort of like the second team in the city behind time, al Ittihad, who are another one of the big four. And usually they only get attendances of about fifteen thousand on this night it was thirty thousand and there were banners everywhere there was massive noise there was new songs from Marres, who's joined our laque along with bobby Firmino. and 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 it had a real re, it was really bouncing it really felt you know i, I you i'm sure you'll recall i certainly do calling you in from the stairwell in in uh in Doha. Uh, after Saudi Arabia beat Argentina and that was a crazy match experience. The the fact that the full kind of impact of like, oh, these Saudi fans are real. And you got a sense of that in this Al-Akhali match as well. Although there was a little bit that was thinking like, yeah, I think somebody's made sure this doesn't go wrong. Somebody's made sure that everybody turns up. Somebody made sure that, you know, there were banners printed out for all the players in the team, including Roger Ibanez, who'd only signed the night before. So somebody was really, this wasn't a kind of, necessarily a grassroots endeavour but it felt it felt real it felt loud it it was I enjoyed that the football was all right like Mares and Firmino were clearly just kind of cruising at altitude above everybody else and they went 2-0 up within 10 minutes and then the rest of it was sort of a bit of a a bit of a applaud and Al hasn't got a goal back. Very nice little chip from twenty-five yards. I think one of the interesting things, just as an aside, about the Saudi Pro League is that there's loads of players who are there already, who were there before this money came in, and there are you know everybody's got their own little Brazilian or Argentinian Argentinian number ten, and so you can watch these players that you've never really heard of do kind of little interesting things, and and like okay, fair play to you. But yeah, that was that was I think that was a good start, and certainly watching it, we went into the bowels of the ground after to do a bit of mixed zone chat. We got Sam Maximan, who was a good speaker on the subject of why he was moving there. Um, but you got to see some of the telly footage there, and it's like, oh, it's clear, all right, okay, this telly product is good. Like, they know what they're doing. They've Particularly for the opening round of fixtures, they've, they've, they've recruited a lot of um, technicians from Premier League productions, the people who've made the Premier League, the global football product. And they've all gone over to Saudi Arabia to do a bit of short term, no doubt, highly paid work. And the look, of the, the look of the league is strong on telly, looks strong. So there was so there was that. That was on the Friday night. The weekend saw Ronaldo's team, Al Nasser, uh, take on Al-Halal. And now they're the two big Riyadh clubs and they make up the other two teams in the big four in Saudi. They played off in some... I think it's the Arab Champions Cup, which is a sort of newish spin on an old tournament, which is to try and get more rivalry between regional countries. So UAE, Qatar, but also Egypt. And, you know, have some sort of, make it a bit more of a kind of a thing to be beating your local rivals and stuff. And and so that was a an extra, that's the fourth competition they played. That was the final, they won. Ronaldo scored the winner, went off injured on this, you know, golf buggy <laughs> looking so anguished. And then they kind of won that they won the tournament and all that. He was, he was, you know, he was really making a big noise of this. But this was sort of not the Saudi Pro League. This was something that was pretty much domestic consumption only. So it was kind of weird that they had this big thing in the middle of their opening weekend. And then, of course, Ronaldo was injured. So he couldn't make the Monday night game, which was uh, in demand, which is on the East Coast and incredibly hot. It's like where they found the oil. And it's incredibly hot. It's like 47 degrees during the day there while we were there. And that's where the Scousers are. So um, Gerard uh, and Hendo and uh, this young Scott called Jack Hendry were part of this team that was going to face Ronaldo's Al Nasser. But Ronaldo was cropped. The manager rotated the entire team, which, you know, again, when you're launching a global television product, like, okay, what you're selling to the people is like, not what they're getting. And so that was a bit of a shock and the ground was half empty and everyone was there to see Ronaldo, like clearly. So it was that was a bit of a weird one. And 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 further to that, it was still 35 degrees at night. Like this is 10 o'clock at night, 35 degrees. Like the people couldn't play. Henderson, I sort of, I did a match report on the thing and this was my intro because he did this recovery run at like 30 minutes to track back a midfield runner. So he's went up halfway to the edge of his box and he was absolutely scunnered at the end of it. He couldn't move. He was on his haunches. There was an hour to go in the game. They, you know, they went on to win. There was, uh, they were 1-0 down at this point And it looked like, you know, even against the reserves, they were going to, the Al Nasser reserves, they were going to struggle. But they came back thanks to two terrible goalkeeping errors, which is another thing, you know, like the quality of the teams is highly variable because they've, they've allowed to bring in eight foreign stars and when you bring in your eight foreign stars, as I think I, I think the Chinese Super League found, you don't spend that money on a goalkeeper. You know, you bring in somebody who's going to score your goals or create. So there was a terrible goalkeeping and, and uh, Al Etifak went on to win the game. But it was just, it wasn't, it wasn't a great game. It was inc- and You could clearly see that the pace that it was being played at was a world away from something you'd kind of associate with European football. So all these things about the product, I'm kind of like, you've got a long way to go, guys. Um, now, from all the reporting I've been doing on it, I know they're, you know, the the way they talk, they're in it for the long term. They're not worried about delivering on day one. They are about uh, long term. They have long term ambitions, vision 2030, all these sorts of things, and they're willing to put tons and tons of money into it every year. You know, we, you'd expect that to change and get better and stronger and more competitive. And I think they've got ambitions about. Where this league goes, you know, they're certainly going to want loads of Saudi teams in the expanded Club World Cup, which is coming to the States in 2025. Might they want them to kind of, uh, as my friend was pointing out, well, there's Israeli teams in the Champions League. So what about a Saudi team in the Champions League? You know, that kind of, there'll there'll be lots of ambitions to sort of change the makeup on how they get there. But, you know, they've got a long way to go. And I think it's also possible... They give it a try for a few years and it doesn't change and then people start looking at the money they're spending and going, uh, could we be doing something different with that? So I think it's it's certainly not the inevitable Galactus eater of worlds kind of thing, um, but they've got some good ideas. They've obviously got a lot of good players and you know the key asset they have is their money, which will mean that as well as recruiting on-field talent, they'll keep on recruiting people off of it. Did you know Slaven Bilic is in Saudi Arabia? He is he is managing a, a mediocre team in the Saudi Pro League. You know, there's like lots of you know, again, players, coaches, people you wouldn't kind of have noticed are going there too. So lots of work to do.
3: It's like the A League where someone's telling you, you go, Oh,
5: that's where they are. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Like, exactly. Oh, um, exactly. Did
3: you uh, did you get to ask anybody about human rights? Like any players or any league bosses or anyone at all? Or was that was it very much I'm going to watch the football?
5: I mean, it's funny. I yeah we did ask uh, I say we it wasn't me, it was a colleague from the athletic asked Michael Emanalo the who's the te- technical director for the league about about Henderson and about you know how that sort of how much of a kind of a, like an issue that would be for somebody to come over here when they had previously you know uh, been an ally in, for LGBTQ plus community and that he gave a sort of a, a, a badly worded, inelegant, well, not he, he kind of described, he sort of said that Eminano said, you know, everybody like, uh, don't get me wrong. I'm somebody who likes to have a lot of fun. And then it was like, what are you saying? That somebody's sexuality is having fun? Well, hang on. And he, and he moved on. Basically, I think he was trying to make the point that you come here and you do a job uh, and that's for, for pros and for the clubs, then that's, you know, it's not their job to be thinking about these sorts of things. You can, uh, you might well take an, a, a different view on that, but I think clearly. I mean, I think what the, I don't think, I think the kind of the the time of going and asking the Saudis, what about your human, you know, or, or people who, the, the Saudis don't really care. I don't think about what people think about their human rights record. I don't. I don't think they're really. I don't think that's their their top of their top of thought. I think they see themselves as having a a, a culture which they it's their culture. They're going to stick with it. That that this is, it, it requires, and you heard this in Qatar too, you know, this is you know a different way of living and, and you from outside need to understand that. Um, but I also think they're quite happy to kind of like throw back on everybody else and go, well, you know, what about, what about abortion in the States? You know, what about the, the, the history of colonialism in the UK? You know, all, all these sorts of things, which I think are kind of perfectly valid things to say. So, you know, I think, in terms of people going there and working there, yeah, that's a that's a genuine question which they don't want to answer. You know, we were waiting for Henderson after the Etihad game; they smuggled him out through a a private um, exit. So, you know, they, they don't want to talk about that stuff. Um, and I think when they do, you'll get a sort of a templated answer now about about what it means.
3: Noz, I think the first time we had you on was um, reflecting about Qatar and our coverage and whether it was kind of a very sort of simplistic Western view. Um, Obviously, you're Western, but as a Muslim, I wonder how if you view this Saudi League any differently. Like, I I kind of scoff at any player going and saying they're just going for the money and they don't care about people. But obviously, a lot of Muslim players are going to Saudi. Like, am I a simplistic Westerner, I guess, is my question, if that's the right question.
4: I think, I mean, it's undeniably sports-washing. And this idea of what about colonialism and what about abortion rights and and also like th- th- there's been this quite sassy but uh, ugly kind of uh insinuation of like oh, uh, we don't want greenwood because um he wouldn't reflect well on the league so it's it's definitely sports washing and 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 on all those things are kind of irrelevant because because the government the UK government does not own the premier league if they did then all those factors come into it because then you attach the crimes of the, of the state to, to the product. Whereas in, in, in Saudi, obviously there's a very direct involvement from the government. So I think it's, I think it's absolutely fine to bring these things up and it's, and it's important to bring the, these things up. I think, I think what, what, what Paul has said and, and, and what uh, the likes of uh, James Montague I've said in the past. I think it's it's very interesting because although something might be bad in terms of um, that uh, government involvement and the fact that it's being used as sports washing and and and, and also uh, how how that sort of contradicts certain players' views and and our views as fans in terms of um, LGBTQ plus rights and things like that, th- it doesn't mean everything is evil. It doesn't mean everything is bad. So. So, so what I found interesting about what Paul was saying was about the fans, and about um, how they're buying into the league because the state might be have might might have issues. The state might have human rights issues, but individuals aren't to blame for that. And and individuals are football fans. And what we saw what we saw at the World Cup was was. Football, normal football fans in the Middle East getting very sort of rightfully excited about being in the spotlight for the first time, really, in, in, in terms of world football. So I find that interesting in terms of like Saudi fans and and how they're buying into the league and how they feel about having a league that's that's got some attention because from their point of view, they are just football fans and and, and there's a pride in... In, in supporting a team and 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 that happening um i'm also fascinated by the strategy and and, and it was really interesting to hear what paul was saying in terms of how that's working and where, and the fact that it doesn't feel particularly joint up in in in, in sort of like uh in a really st- strategic way however um i do think i i do think the lumpiness of the league in terms of you've got these big stars and these big names and these and this massive quality of of the of the bigger players and then you've got other players who are who are not as good, patently, and probably shouldn't be in the same league. I think that's fine as a strategy for now, because uh, we live—we live in a time where young, football, very young football fans, the the kind of there's almost there's almost a move away from supporting clubs, and it's more about supporting players, and it's more about being a Neymar fan, or it's more about being a Ronaldo fan, or a Messi fan. So I think that's fine. I think they'll get the YouTube moments. I think they'll get the clips. So, so that's fine. Um, but um, longer term, it, it, the sustainability will obviously be the quality of the whole league improving in terms of all the players, but also how the local fans buy into that. I think, I think I, I might be wrong, Paul, but like um, a, as big as Saudi is in terms of landmass, the the population seems to be quite um, compact in terms of like the areas where people live. So. That does lend itself to there being local rivalries. That does lend itself to there being genuine sort of those rival teams that you always need for a league for a league to succeed and to have those kind of storylines.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think particularly in the you know that's the case with the big four. So two in Jeddah, two in Riyadh, and that, you know that those are the big urban urban centres. And yeah, I think I think that's. You could look at it one way and think, okay, that's how they're, you know, they're going to build the rivalries that way. They can see that's where the strengths are and they're going to build on that. And then alternative, you can think, well, that's probably the team. Those are going to be the teams that the the higher-ups like. So, you know, you can never sort of dissociate it entirely from the politics of the country and about, you know, national prestige, but also just two individuals kind of quite like to watch. I mean, uh, one thing... That I think you're really right about the, the, the individuals. And, and, and I've got this little kind of thing in my head whereby I can see certainly Ronaldo has become the, the embodiment of Al Nasser. That's, he, he gets to own that team in a way that he never did at Real Manchester United. You know, he, he was maybe the biggest star, but the club sat above him. I think he sits above this club. And you can see a kind of similar way in which, particularly for an international audience, and I think you can see a similar way in which Benzema might do it for Al and even Henderson for Etihad. These kind of leaders, these sort of icons. And then I think when you kind of look at it in those terms and sort of create storylines around that and that kind of thing, that's a way in which that 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 this league can this league can work and maybe do something different from the way that Europe works, simply because the clubs are bigger. Um, and I think it's interesting that the chief operating officer of the, of the Saudi Pro League comes from. A long stint working in WWE, so you know, so a guy who understands Ronaldo talks.
3: might get hit by a chair.
5: Well, exactly. And and then, like, I mean, I think join. you know, absolutely. <laughs> he understands. He's like talks about narrative. We're a experiential entertainment business, is what the way he describes it.
3: Oh, the referee will be accidentally knocked out, and then they'll, they'll everyone will run a mock.
5: But then he'll come charging back onto the field when he's least expected, and uh,
3: yeah.
5: <laughs> get somebody in a neck hold. Um so yeah i think I think there's that the, that 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 aspect of it is interesting, interesting but yes uh, the the there's a domestic point about the league. it's about kind of providing prestige, it's about providing entertainment, it's about you know stimulus for people uh fifty percent of the is under twenty five they want to kind of get you know give them something um and so uh, again, I think looking at the fact that you go to an Etifac game and there's nobody there basically nobody there supporting Etifac who hasn't been drafted into the ultras. Suggest that, yeah, okay, concentrating on bigging up these big four teams where they actually do have substantial fan bases is is maybe the way to start.
3: I look forward to um, the Macho Man signing for Al-Hilal in the the next couple of... Before the window closes, if there is a window. Um, I've got to move on. We don't have much time. And Paul, we promised you 30 seconds on Norwich City. Third in the league, unbeaten, just two points behind... Rivals Ipswich. That's going to be some second East Anglian derby after Cambridge Peterborough, of
5: course. Uh, oh, sec- oh, don't please don't. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know it's a, it's eleven years now on beating in that derby. So we're going to get we're going to lose at some point, and, and yeah, maybe it'll be this year. I think Norwich fans are you know more than pleasantly surprised. I, I, I don't think many people listen to this podcast wanting to know what actually is going on in Norwich City. So just to make a couple of generic points, like last year the fan base completely fell out with the club. It was absolute mutiny. Like everybody hated everything. There were there was loads of um, photos of cut up um, season tickets and stuff. And we're three games into the season, and the bond between the fans and the club is stronger than any time. You know, it's probably as strong, probably stronger than the Farky is because it feels like it's being done in adversity. It's just a, a, a sort of a marker of how fee- kind of fluctuate emotional the relationship is between a fan, ba- a fan base and its club and that actually it doesn't always have to be down, down, down. What it, And what has brought it back up is a sense that the players are fighting. Um, we've, we've, we've brought in Ashley Barnes and Shane Duffy in particular, who are lads who completely go against the style that we've become accustomed for in the last few years. They want to play physical. I went to watch and play Millwall at the weekend, beaten 3-1. Play very well, but also just won eighty percent of the physical duels. Fans get behind that. It, it, it's interesting just how what what just the small things that you can do quite quickly as a team to kind of change that uh, as a club to kind of change that um, relationship between the uh, between the fan base and the club. Second thing, I just you know we haven't really spent much money, and we've we've sold some players. Not for we sold Max Aaron's to Bournemouth, for example. So we run it, We're we we needed to because. We overspent in the Premier League. This may not have looked like it, but we did. And so we need to do that to balance the box. But looking through the Championship, everybody's doing that. I think there's seven teams who have a net positive spend this summer. Everybody else is, is cutting their cloth. And I think that's partly the sort of the vestige of COVID. People still needed to make money back. There's still kind of substantial losses in and around the Championship. But it may also be that the era of... Um, you know, uh, crazy speculative investment in the Championship is, is, is changing. Um, obviously, you've got new owners of places like Birmingham, but you've got you know, other, other clubs that are, you know, very much kind of, you know, particularly looking at the relegated teams, they've taken in a lot of money and they haven't spent it, at least yet.
3: We'll finish on an email from Ryan. Who says hi, Max Barry and friends? My father Andy wrote in last week about my wedding last Saturday to my Samantha. I was very touched, especially as a loyal listener, and I'm happy to inform you that the wedding proceeded successfully without incident, including uninvited Irishmen crashing the party. However, out of an abundance of caution, we did remove the part from our efficient speech where they would have asked if anyone objected to our union. I might seem like the villain to this love story. But I prefer to see this episode as a narrowly avoided obstacle for Barry. Leaving me to marry Samantha will now allow Barry to finally pursue his true love and make his feelings known to Susanna Hoffs. Hopefully this will give both Barry and all loyal Football Weekly listeners the happy ending they truly deserve. All my best, Ryan. Um, uh,
0: Barry, any reaction? No, I'm just happy the the wedding went ahead. I didn't make it in time to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to object and steal Samantha away from Ryan. Oh, there
3: we are. Well, you know, good luck to the pair of you. And uh, um, if if Susanna is listening, Football Weekly at TheGuardian.com. And that'll do for today. Thanks, Noz. Thank you. Cheers, Paul.
5: Thank you very much.
3: Cheers, Barry. Thanks. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Max Sardison. We'll be back on Monday.
0: This is The Guardian.